Welcome to another episode of Conic Detrimental. I am Dan Lost and joined by Dan Wallach. Kind of a loaded week this week. I guess every week is, is loaded topics when we were in sports law. The John Gruden saga continues. The NFL has filed their response to the lawsuit filed by John Gruden. We'll get into that. The Denver Broncos look like they're hitting the open market after a court uh, ruled on this right of first refusal case. We'll talk about that. Novak Djokovic back in the news, maybe suing the Australian government. We'll get into that. And then Dan, I know you have some updates on the Ford's betting front. You're always covering that. Before we get into the roadmap, Dan, since our last appearance, Maybe a first for Conduct Detrimental. I don't know how you want to phrase it. You got into a little bit of a tiff, a little bit of a beef, a little bit into a spat with a, a prior guest on the St. Louis Rams lawsuit saga. Dan, the floor is yours. Tell everybody what's going on here. Well, you know, it's been two months since the you know St. Louis Rams relocation lawsuit has been settled and everyone's trying to sort of put a, I wouldn't call it spin, but just sort of justify the settlement or not justify the settlement. And there remains a lot of heated debate over whether the county and city of St. Louis should have settled the case at the point that it did for the amount that it did instead of going to a trial, getting accountability, and maybe you know maybe getting an expansion team out of the process. So there's a faction, obviously a faction of people within the within St. Louis that believe that what they did here was slay the dragon, and that under no conditions did they want the city to ever be in bed with the NFL again and to not pursue an expansion team. It's basically good riddance NFL. We won $790 million and you're not going to be able to do this to other cities. And, and I said, wait, 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 wait. You know, these lawyers are on this like victory tour claiming that they've slayed or slewn. I don't know what the word is. Slayed the dragon. Slew, slew um, the dragon. Slew, slew the dragon. And I'm, and I'm saying, wait one second here. There's no admission of liability. This is a settlement, a compromise reached two months before the trial for an amount significantly less than what the city and county could have achieved on appeal while incinerating and snuffing out any prospects for leveraging this lawsuit into a settlement for an NFL expansion team. And it's not unprecedented. I mean, the Cleveland uh, city of Cleveland brought suit in the late 1990s and without going nearly as far as, as the St. Louis plaintiffs did, the NFL brokered a compromise in which Cleveland ended up with a new team. Baltimore got a new team. Houston got a new team. Yet we're hearing out of, you know, certain, you know, I guess, you know, media sources in St. Louis that an NFL expansion team wasn't a possibility. And you can't accept that as, as, as finality because the circumstances change. And when you're 50 days away from, from a trial holding no monetary judgment and you haven't sworn your first witness, that's an entirely different situation then when folks like Roger Goodell and, and, and Stanley Kroenke are, are testifying under oath, and then you have a jury verdict. And that jury verdict can add many zeros to the final tab. And then the NFL has a completely different calculus. So I don't know, I'll give it back to you, Dan, but that's my take. I think it was premature to settle when, when the city and county did. Yeah, I think people know our, our thoughts on this pretty well. The uh, Just to provide a little bit of context, Ben Fredrickson you know, is a fantastic reporter over at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. We had him on on the show, he's been uh, outspoken about this case for uh, years, right? So when we were starting our, our deep dive into the St. Louis Ram saga, you know, we, we asked our, our uh, you know, our followers on social media, who is a good person to speak to to get the real down low, you know, word on the ground in St. Louis. And, and Ben was recommended by a number of people and, you know, people that are familiar with the episode. Ben came on and did a great, I think he did a great job explaining us, explaining the history. 
So, I don't know, Dan, I'll just give a, a little bit of context and then- uh, He was a great I'll... guest. He was a great yeah, he guest. Was, he, not... he was fantastic. I don't think we were, uh, you know, just, you know, Ben, teach us about this lawsuit. Well, we need to know a little bit more well, let about me, it. Let me Looking explain a little bit what happened second. and then, then we'll get in. Yeah. We want to get substance to it. Dan, you appeared on another former guest of the show, someone that appeared on our town hall, Tim McKernan, you appeared on his show and essentially gave your, what you just said, your view of the case that if they would have waited- they probably could have got either more money or potentially an expansion team that they that they had to push that needle. The narrative that's out there, you know, at least in the media reports, that an expansion team was never on the table. I think your and my point and, and the point that others are making, you know, and I think importantly, people on the ground in St. Louis is that if his, his expansion team wasn't on the table, it should have been right that this was your opportunity to do it, and it should have been. So you went on Tim McKernan's show earlier this week and essentially said you know, that, right, that they probably could have, the settlement's not, it's not that the settlement's bad, is that you could have gotten more if you waited. And in so doing, you, you kind of pointed at that article that slew the dragon article by Bob Blitz, the lead trial attorney for the city of St. Louis. And you said, well, it's not really slaying the dragon if you let, kind of let the, the dragon off the hook. And you kind of chastised a little bit of the, I mean, these are my words, the article that seemed to be very much pro Bob Blitz. And that article was from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which is Ben Fredrickson's his newspaper. So again, um, I'll try to be unbiased here. I understand why Ben took offense to that when you were criticizing a, a piece by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. But, you know, I, I think you're entitled to your opinion, Dan. And I think as, you know, us, the, the lawyers here, I think you're probably right. You know, I, there's probably more money, right? And just in, in a legal sense, if you wait to settle the case on the eve of trial, there's usually more money, right? If the NFL was willing to pay $790 million 30 days out of trial, they were probably willing to pay more money as you got closer to trial. So, you know, that I, I think that part was lacking from the article as well. And I'll just, I think I'll just say it, you know, we're, we're the, try to be the legal experts here, right? Ben wants to say that the city of St. Louis shouldn't be upset that they got 790 million. That's totally fair. 790 million is a ton of money. Our argument here is that there was probably more if they would have waited. There's obviously risks if you take a case to trial, certainly, but you know, there, there's a middle ground, right? There's a middle ground of settling the case on the eve of trial and not giving the NFL like, you know, 45 days or 30 days and kind of letting them off the hook. I, th I think that's I think that's a fair middle ground between these two points here. But ultimately, what do you want? You want to have three entities, three municipal entities getting $166 million a piece, or do you want to roll the dice and see what you can ultimately accomplish here? Because a professional sports franchise, an NFL team, would have just been a perpetual economic impact that would eclipse what the city and county ultimately received by many multiples. And this was never intended to be a shot across the bow at either Bob Litz or, or Ben, both of whom have done incredible work covering the case and litigating the case. They wouldn't, the city and county wouldn't be in this position without Mr. Blitz's efforts. But I believe that the city and county left an opponent, you know, staggering in the corner and cashed out rather than go for the kill. And yeah, the kill so, would have been a lot more money or a team. I think people see it both ways. It, it is what it is. The case has been settled. I don't think anyone's going to cry about a $790 million settlement. It's a huge number. But, you know, I think it's a fair point totally that money was left on the table by settling, you know, uh, in the way that they did, which is fine. Okay. Dan, you you and I are, are open to disagreements as long as people do it civilly, which, you know, I think it was it was fine. Fine in the way it was done. Okay. So, Dan, let us move it to the topics of the week. The big story this week, there's going to be more, more to come on this. John Gruden, in early November, filed a basically a, a lawsuit for intentional interference with the contract. He filed that against the NFL. He's claiming that Roger Goodell purposefully and selectively leaked his emails, that the NFL was behind these leaks and cost him his job. Today, or I want to say today, but a couple of days ago was the NFL's time to respond either via answer or via motion to that motion. The case was filed in Nevada State Court. And I think expectedly, anyone could ask you this, 
the NFL was going to move to dismiss. That's usually the league's MO, be it the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA. The league's going to move to dismiss first. And if they fail, then they'll put in an answer and they'll, and they'll go for it. So the NFL has filed a motion to dismiss here. And they're essentially saying that failure to state a cause of action, that Gruden doesn't really have a claim here, that even if the emails were not were leaked in the exact manner that Gruden is claiming that they were leaked, that there were other grounds to terminate Gruden. So I don't think we can read too much into the strength, underlying strength of the claim from the NFL's motion to dismiss. I see this narrative, oh, Gruden's on shaky grounds. His lawsuit's about to get kicked out of court. No, I mean, this is this is pretty much par for the course. The league was always going to move to dismiss. Dan, what, what are your thoughts on the first, we'll say the first offensive maneuver by the NFL? Well, you know, you don't hire Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison to file an answer, generally denying the allegations. I think in every lawsuit that the NFL has ever been challenged on of a, of a high profile, the reflex, the default reflex is to always try to push it into arbitration. So there are two components to the NFL's efforts to seek a dismissal of the case. Number one, they're disputing you know, Gruden's version of the events, but even assuming that everything he's saying is true, those alleged facts do not raise a cognizable cause of action because truth is a defense. And a number of the other reasons, you know, under tortious interference remedies, there's this notion of a, of a privilege and a defendant can assert by way of an affirmative defense that the, that the conduct is privileged. And here, what the NFL is doing is really spinning this more as almost like a, a defense to, to a defamation action and everything that is being alleged here regarding you know, his statements, these are true statements. And he made these statements and he can't disavow them. And for that reason, and we also learned something else that the NFL commissioner had the discretionary authority to fire John Gruden himself. This is the first that I'm learning of the NFL arguing in court or anywhere that it reserved the ability to fire a head coach directly and bypass the owner of the team and terminate the coach's contract under the commissioner's broad disciplinary powers under the NFL constitution. Hey, had I known that, I think, you know, I think all the Giants fans and the role of the Bears fans would have made countless appeals to NFL commissioner Roger Goodell to do something about the sorry states of, of those two respective franchises. So this is a really interesting dynamic that this was conduct that could have resulted in the termination for cause from the NFL, not just from the Las Vegas Raiders. Yeah, so I'm reading just from a portion. It's interesting. So the league argues, quote, had the NFL parties wanted to fire Gruden, they had no need to resort to leaks to force his resignation or to force the Raiders to fire him. This is because, quote, they themselves had the right to cancel Gruden's contract. The NFL constitution grants the commissioner the complete authority to suspend and or fine and or cancel any contract or agreement of any coach whenever the commissioner, after notice and hearing, decides that the coach has either violated the Constitution and bylaws of the league or has been or is guilty of conduct detrimental, there's the word, Dan, to the welfare of the league or professional football. So before I get a well, quick, quick compliment to you for naming the podcast, something that, that, that keeps coming up, Conduct Detrimental, shout out to us. But here's the thing. I don't know of it, if it's ever happened, but this is, you know, Goodell's kind of dusting off the rule book here. He goes, you know what? I could have fired you myself if I wanted to. I can't recall an incident in the NFL where Gruden has bypassed an NFL owner and has made a decision to fire someone on his own. That's a pretty crazy move. And now that begs the question, Dan, right? If, and just going back to a little bit of the reporting that we've covered from the Washington Post, my understanding is that the NFL was aware of these emails, these derogatory emails, at least for about a month, right? Because they were given word of this, these derogatory emails before they went public. But 
you know, you and I, Dan, have, have reported to big commercial clients on, on our cases. There are basically regular reports that goes out. So these emails were probably known to the law firm conducting the investigation as early as July of 2020 when the investigation began. And that's July of 2020, right? That's a year, year plus ago. I imagine that word that sometime in an interim report, this was relayed to the NFL, the one that was paying for this investigation. At some point, right, this would have been relayed to Goodell. So there's a, wor a world that Goodell knew about these allegations from these emails for a year and a half. So if Goodell maintained that authority to cancel Gruden, which, you know, I mean, he's, that's what he's saying he could have done. Why didn't he do it? And I think that's going to be the narrative here. If you had really had the authority to, to fire Gruden, like you didn't do it, you made the team do it. And that's the crux of this lawsuit. So maybe it's kind of a red herring, right? Like, okay, you had the authority to do it. You didn't do it though, right? So why are you bringing this up here? That's a great point you make. And I think what this motion underscores is the NFL is trying to change the narrative. Right. I mean, the narrative, you know, it isn't any longer that this was a targeted hit and, and that Gruden was selectively targeted by the NFL. The NFL is saying that, you know, uh, that you're changing the story entirely and now disavowing that the NFL had anything to do with it. Goodell didn't have anything to do with it, but they don't answer the fundamental question of how did materials that were part of an NFL investigation get leaked, who leaked them? And ultimately, this is all roads lead back to some NFL source or agent, or someone, or several people working in connection with this investigation. So I think it's disingenuous for the National Football League to argue that, hey, it wasn't us. And they're trying to change the narrative entirely by highlighting the fact that these comments were misogynistic, they were made in an open forum, and are not focusing on the issue of how did these emails get out? I mean, it's almost like that classic Rowdy Roddy Piper quote. And just to invoke professional wrestling, one of my favorite quotes of all time from Piper's Pit is just when you think you know the answer, I change the question. And that's what the NFL and Commissioner Goodell are doing here. They're shifting the focus on what might be not a pertinent consideration and not addressing the ultimate you know, accusation here that John Gruden was being targeted by somebody. It's a great point, right? I think they're trying to shift great the quotes. It's one of the greatest quotes. I know who wrapped in. You don't have to quiz me on wrestling quotes. I, I, I'm fully up to speed on Mr. Roddy Roddy Piper, rest in peace. Also, while we take a quick aside, I got a big retweet yesterday from uh, the advocate, Paul Heyman, who is a fellow resident of Westchester County, New York. While we're on this topic, I actually think it's kind of relevant, Dan. You mentioned, and we'll talk about it later in the podcast, we, you found this great link, which Dan, for anyone that doesn't know it, and I you know, apologize if I haven't given you due credit, Dan. Dan curates the news section of ConnectDetrimental.com, which has become the most popular section of our website. Obviously, we have original articles. Yeah, right. It, but Dan, I check the metrics every day. If you are listening to this podcast, if you're a lawyer and a law student, we always say it. We don't, it's not just lip service. Hopefully, it's not going on deaf ears. If you want to write for us, there is no interview process. You are allowed to write for us. We edit it. We make sure it goes to the right people. We've had articles get picked up by ESPN, The Washington Post. If you want to write an article, you're, you're more than welcome to. What Dan does in our news section is Dan, because he's this is the only, maybe the only benefit, Dan, to you being in Russia and being 12-hour time difference of us. If there's an article that breaks at two in the morning, Dan sees it before anyone else and puts it out and, and we get a lot of uh, traction on the website that and you obviously credit credit wherever it comes from. Dan, you pointed out. Well, of course, I, I, we're aggregating. I mean, that portion of the site is just sort of aggregating. Yeah, but you, know, you are stories. You're, you're at the top. Of it. I want to give you your credit. Dan, you, you mentioned this and, and I think it, it actually you'll see where I'm going with this. So Dan tweeted out an article. You tweeted out an article yesterday that the Washington football team, who just so everyone remembers, right? 
This is an investigation into the Washington football team that resulted in John Gruden being fired. So kind of a weird situation, right? Gruden, John Gruden did not work for the Redskins. His brother, Jay Gruden did, but it's kind of a weird coincidence. Dan, you found this article yesterday, which I found to be so interesting, that the Washington football team has had four top legal officials in the last three years. Just hard stop for a second. That's not normal. Being the head lawyer for an NFL team is a dream job. We would all kill for that role. The fact that they've had such high turnover in such a short amount of time, I think it's fair to read into that. So Dan, in the middle of all of this, right, Washington's being investigated for toxic workplace, sexual harassment. They can't keep their lawyer, right, in the middle of all this, and they keep, they keep losing their lawyer. So that's in the middle of all this. And we should point out, the other person that's being pointed at as being that might have leaked these emails is someone at Washington football team HQ, whether it's Dan Snyder or somebody else. That's the narrative. So just to close the loop, Paul Heyman, we pointed out like, you know, this is a sign of a dysfunctional organization if you can't hire a lawyer. And Paul Heyman said, you know, maybe Dan, they, they should hire someone that, that really cares about sports law. Yours truly. I don't want the Washington job. That, that stinks. It's toxic. But I appreciate my friend Paul Heyman giving us the shout. So, Dan, maybe I take the job with you. You want to be co-general counsels of Washington football team? You want to take it? You know, if it leads to me becoming the assistant general manager and ultimately the general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, you know, maybe, maybe I'd consider it as a stepping stone. But but surely That'd it's be, only because that has just happened. We should point out the former general counsel of the team is now the assistant GM of the Dodgers. Hey, run an organization by, 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 by into the, the way, ground. That, that, that's the job with the most secure with the most job security in all of baseball to be the assistant general manager. I read somewhere that the tenure of an assistant general manager for major league baseball team, the average tenure is 12 years. That's great. Whereas for the GM, you got all the media responsibilities and all the scrutiny and the, 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 the average tenure is probably less than five years. So Meanwhile, that's the job you want. If you're the legal counsel for any other team, I know, I, and I know a lot of them, right? We, we, you and I personally know two of them that have very, very close connections to us. That's a job that usually hold for years, right? If not a decade, if or not more. In Washington, that job has a, has a turnover rate of less than 12 months, which tells you everything you need to know. But anyway, Dan, back to this lawsuit. And I want to give a shout out to one of our followers who, who made a great point. And he goes, this is um, Tony S524 on Twitter. He's a Raiders fan. He's also an attorney. And he points out with respect to this lawsuit, he, he tagged me in a post, which I, I want to give him his due credit. He goes, the NFL can't definitively prove they didn't leak the emails. You can't prove a negative. Gruden has to offer proof that it did. The burden of proof is going to be on Gruden to show that, right? I think it's a colorable argument. I think it's enough to get discovery, potentially enough to take depositions. You know, Goodell can try to shift the narrative all he wants. But if he has a, if Gruden has a colorable basis, which I think he does, to think that the NFL you know, because they were one of a handful of entities, maybe three entities that had that had possession of these emails. One of them made the leak, right? So I think that's enough to get him into court. And I think Tony makes a good point on Twitter. This is the NFL, right? The NFL can can shift the narrative all they want. But at the end of the day, truthfully, the burden is on John Gruden to prove his case, which he's going to have a hard time showing. But I think he's going to be able to conduct discovery to get to that question. That's the whole point of a lawsuit. Yeah. And you brought up, that's a great point, Dan. You brought up the, you know, the, the key issue here, which is discovery. You don't bring in Paul Weiss, just to handle a simple state court lawsuit and argue, you know, affirmative defenses. You're bringing them in in anticipation of the discovery battle for the ages. And while the burden of proof ultimately falls with John Gruden, he's not in a position right now 
at the pleading stage to prove his case with evidence. That evidence lies within the sole repository of the National Football League. And Gruden is going to claim that he needs to have access to discovery, as most plaintiffs do in most cases when you're suing corporate defendants, to be able to prove his case by a preponderance of the evidence. And I believe there are so many parallels to the St. Louis relocation lawsuit, you know, the, the, the efforts to, to throw this case into arbitration. I mean, those failed in St. Louis. It was, it was denied by the trial court, the appellate court, and the U.S. Supreme Court denied certiorari around it. I think, I think the fate of an arbitration motion in this case, in the Nevada case, will likewise meet a similar fate because he's not suing under his contract. He's claiming that a third party, the NFL, tortiously interfered and committed all these various torts against him. And I believe in a, in a, in a hometown and a home, you know, let, let's not ignore the home forum here, which is a state court elected judges in a city that saw the National Football League place its thumb on the scales in the middle of the regular season after sitting on this evidence for so many months. I'm not saying that the judge is going to be biased here, but of all the forums that the NFL is making this argument for a dismissal and, a, and to compel arbitration. And I see certain parallels to how things played out in St. Louis. And I, I believe this case is going to go forward to discovery and the arbitration motion will probably be denied. And, and so will the 12B6 type motion. You know, this is just the beginning of the battle. This is all about the discovery and the 650,000 emails and getting to the truth of how these emails were leaked and who leaked them. And if this case doesn't do it, we certainly have the prospect of a congressional investigation. As we put this topic in the books, you in your last sentence, you said that well, the thing that we need to watch out for, there's always discovery in lawsuits. It's always normal. What's not normal in a lawsuit is that you have the federal government helping you out as you're kind of you know on the side. You have normal discovery through the normal proper channels of a, of a legal action. You have the federal government, right, in Congress, putting a, you know, their thumb on Washington and say, we want the emails, putting their thumb on the NFL. Like we, we want these emails. Again, I think they're going to get, these emails are going to come out one way or the other. It's a matter of whether Gruden gets access to them. I believe Congress will get access to them or we'll have some type of hearing, but lots to watch for on the Washington front. And ultimately, and just to finalize this, I think the truth comes out. This is not the concussion case where you can, you know, sort of secrete away these, these documents and they never see the public eye one way or another through private litigation, or congressional hearings, the truth is going to come out. And the story about Dan Snyder's involvement, if he's involved at all, will come out. And I, I believe that these two pressure points will ultimately lead to their result. It's a matter of when, not if. Okay, well said, Dan. Let's stay within football before we move on. The Denver Broncos, the story that I was uh, excited about, I know you have more on it. Here's the long and short. In our sports vernacular, obviously there's some crossover between sports law and sports business. Here's a story kind of, you know, perfect intersection. The Denver Broncos, there was a lawsuit earlier this week where a judge ruled that a right of first refusal is declared null and void that will allow the Denver Broncos, a majority share in the Broncos, to hit the open market. A hard stop there. That doesn't happen in sports. It's very rare. I believe the last time it happened, honestly, at least as far as I'm aware, Dan, maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, was the Los Angeles Clippers in the sale uh, that was kind of forced by Donald Sterling and the whole probate proceeding, whether he was declared mentally incompetent. That team, Los Angeles team in a major media market, you know, basically was put up for, uh, I want to call it a silent auction. It was down to a handful, I think maybe four or five groups that were approved by the NBA, the board of directors. And they said, basically, one of these five teams is going to get it. Everyone put their last and final offer in, and one of these will be accepted. As history would have it, 
The team led by Steve Ballmer, former Microsoft executive, I think if our memory serves, basically bid $2 billion on the team, billion with a B. He outbid the next closest uh, competitor by like a billion dollars. And he's arguing, people were kind of poking fun. Hey, Ballmer, you know, you're supposed to be the smartest guy in the room. Had you overbid by a billion dollars? And his comments, I think, were very smart. Like, this doesn't happen that often, that a team is going to hit the open market in a major media market like Los Angeles. And, you know, I think the kind of the narrative was like, like Ballmer's made of money, right? Well, I don't know. You could buy a sports team. What's cooler than owning a sports team? And I think Ballmer, uh, a sister would have it, probably was one step ahead of us. You know, Ballmer's usually the smartest guy in the room at whatever room he's in. And Ballmer ended up shifting the market by purchasing the Clippers for $2 billion. We saw the market move across, not just basketball, across all of sports. Recently, there was a valuation of the Golden State Warriors. Somebody brought in a, a minority share of the Warriors that event, essentially valued the team at $5 billion, right? And that was a story from 2021. So, you know, Ballmer effectively moved the market with his purchase of the team, you know, and now about a decade ago. Now, move on, right? Now we're in the, in the Broncos, and I'll give it to you, Dan, explain what happened with the law. But we have two groups, and maybe they're going to be more, but Peyton Manning and John Elway, who are leading the, the charge to potentially get into a bidding war for the Broncos, which all sports owners in baseball, football, basketball, hockey, they're all licking their chops at another auction here to, again, raise the floor. This doesn't really happen. So, Dan, I'll turn it to you to explain what the legal battle was. But this is every you know a case that all sports owners across the country were paying very close attention to. I'll say this. You know, you said it's very cool to own a professional sports team. I, I think it's more than cool. It's very financially savvy and sound. Owning a major professional sports team, buying one of those teams, will always prove to be one of the best investments because there's limited supply. You know, over the course of, you know, my lifetime, the values of teams have only gone up. I mean, the Mets and Yankees were sold for, you know, roughly 10 and $20 million in the 1970s, 1980s. And, and now we're in the billions and we haven't, I don't think we'll ever reach a ceiling in our, in, in our lifetime because there'll be more revenue streams that are available that weren't available previously. Legalized sports betting. Now teams are getting licenses to operate online sports betting in their states. You know, Missouri is going to is going to be next. Maryland, Arizona, those opportunities by themselves could generate, you know, 30, 40, 50 million dollars in revenue annually for teams in perpetuity. So I think this will only keep going up and up. But before we start declaring the bidding war officially on in the Denver Broncos situation, I think we need to pump the brakes a little bit because the ink is barely dry on the final judgment. And the losing party, the party holding the right of first refusal, has up to 30 days to appeal the judgment. And they've been fighting this war for the last so many years. I don't think that they're going to walk away and say, OK, the trial judge ruled against us on an issue of contract interpretation on a pure issue of law. I think there's every incentive for the plaintiff here, the losing party, to take this issue to the Colorado Intermediate Appellate Courts. They have got nothing to lose. And by filing an appeal, they can tie up the sale process sufficiently to maybe leverage a settlement because if they pursue an appeal, that could add upwards of one year or more to this ongoing judicial proceeding and make a sale of the Denver Broncos almost impossible to consummate while there's a, a, a potential encumbrance on the ownership out there. So I think the next step, I'd be surprised if the plaintiffs abandon the case. I think they're going to file a notice of appeal, and then we're going to see a little bit of intrigue thrown into the equation here, because how can you start a sale process when the litigation is not officially over? I think it's a good point. And just for the reasons that kind of I laid out, 
right? They might have a, a billion reasons to, to fire, file an appeal, right? Same reason that we talked about why the NFL filed a motion to dismiss. Can't hurt, right? It, it can't hurt. The NFL is made of money. Even if you lose the motion to dismiss, it's just money. And, and if you're an owner of a sports team, certainly you have enough money to file an appeal and you know exhaust all remedies before you kind of wave the white flag. Dan, just a, a personal story. The way that money works out in, in sports culture, which I think I've said in the podcast, my, my family, I grew up as a San Francisco Giants fan because of their old New York baseball ties. The San Francisco Giants were sold in 1992 for $110 million. That's 30 years ago. You can say inflation, right? But we're talking about a, a team, San Francisco Giants, being sold for 110 million in a major media market, and now we're talking about teams being sold for two billion. So the sports market, as you say, Dan, is just bananas, right? Teams are going sold for crazy amounts, and they're, and they're not being sold at the level of frequency they were in the 90s. So my dad, you know, we don't we don't have 110 million dollars, but he said, you know, oh, if I only would have pulled together all my friends, and maybe we could have scrounged together. And I'm like, Dad, there's no way you would have got 110 million dollars. You're out of your mind. But you know, it, it's just kind of like. You know, the, there was a world where potentially, right, if you got into an ownership in the 90s or 80s, and even John or Dan, your favorite team that you love to talk about, John Mara, right? Those guys, their family business is owning a sports team and they're doing pretty well, right? So um, the world of sports ownership has gone through the roof. No, no Joe Schmo is going to own a team anytime soon. And I think the story with the Maras, Dan, if memory serves, I don't know if there's truth to this. I know I've heard it, is that Wellington Mara actually got the team over a poker game that there was some type of, you know, he doesn't have enough money on him, whoever was selling the team. And he goes, you know what, if I win this hand, I'll even stake my ownership in the Giants. And Wellington, you know, I'll, I'll make it up that he had a, a full boat, like Kings over Kings over deuces or something, but he won the hand. As urban legend would hold, that's how the, the Mara family got a hold of the team. So that's like maybe the most expensive poker hand in history, right? A, a billion dollar poker hand at the end of the day, that, that, that sure accrued very well. Well, you know, it's ironic that the uh, New York Giants ownership was transferred as a result of a poker game, but Tim Mara, who bought the Giants or, or procured the Giants in that legendary poker game in the 1920s, was a bookmaker. He was a, he was a sports betting bookmaker, and it's kind of ironic that over the course of time, the NFL has, had become the most strongest opponent against legalized sports betting of any of any of the, the professional sports leagues and one of their owners got his start in the business, you know, in his livelihood as a bookie. But I, but I think the, the best way to show the shocking increase in valuation of sports franchises is to look at the Golden State Warriors. A recent valuation pegged their value at $5.5 billion. It wasn't that long ago. In fact, it was 2010 that the franchise was in fact sold for $450 million which means that in a little bit over one decade, the value of the team has increased slightly more than tenfold. And that's without legalized sports betting. That's, you know, without online, you know, gambling. And the venues are increasingly going to have access to, you know, gambling revenues and the TV deals, the streaming deals, the economic situation or the, the economic opportunities and revenue streams for teams were a lot different in 2010 than they are now and are going to be in the future. So it's just going to keep going up, up, up and up. And I frequently have flashbacks. I, I think of, oh, you know, my, I, I had a very well, I have a very, you know, well-off uncle and I wish I could go back in time to when I was 16 years old and say, Uncle Bob, it's only 1978, but you need to get in on the bidding for the New York Mets. Trust me, in 30 years your $10 million investment is going to be worth $2 billion. Just, just believe, I mean, I have those, we all wish we knew how much teams would be worth, how much sports media networks were worth. I mean, who even envisioned 
an ESPN or a Madison Square Garden Network or other regional sports networks in, in such a small or short amount of time with the proliferation of the internet and cable television, the industry has just gotten, you know, it just exploded into, you know, sort of these levels that, that have been meteoric. It is what it is, Dan. I wish uh, I put all my bar mitzvah money in uh, Amazon and, you know, in Apple, but, you know, say la vie, Dan. Okay, so la, let us move on to a story that we've been covering very closely. An update here, and Dan, again, you, you credit for finding this at... 11.30 at night, ET, which is, I think is 11 a.m. your time. So great find. I'm GMT. It's GMT. We're not, I'm, not, I'm not giving any credit for Russian time zones in this podcast. Okay. We're, we're solely an ET podcast. Novak Djokovic, who, if you listen to our last special episode, he you know, essentially got kicked out of Australia, not allowed to compete in the Open. Certainly kind of a messy story, but one that we knew we wouldn't see the end of. There have been two big updates since then. There was a new law, a new vaccine law that was passed in France. And why that's relevant, obviously the French Open, there was one of the major tournaments in tennis. That law essentially, um, paraphrasing, but essentially says they're not going to be giving exemptions to anyone. You have to be vaccinated. The French Open is scheduled for May. And, you know, the French Open sports directors essentially said a lot can change between now and May, but, you know, that's, this is what we're dealing with right now. So Novak, all of a sudden, you know, went from being the favorite, you know, in the Australian Open now, not maybe not being able to compete in the French Open. And obviously, you know, Dan, I'm from New York. They're very tight with vaccine laws here. You know, he might not be able to compete in the U.S. Open. So Novak, with kind of its back up against the wall, I wasn't necessarily surprised to see this story. You, you tweeted this out early in the morning that Novak is contemplating a $4.4 million lawsuit against the Australian government for his kind of, you know, they use the term humiliating treatment. Dan, you and I joked on the last podcast about this Roach Hotel and yeah, and uh, at least there are people in, in Novak's camp that, that were saying there were fleas and maggots. That's a quote from the article at the hotel. In addition to this 4.4 million, what's included in that is the $2.75 million in prize money that as the favorite of the Australian Open, he was expecting to get. This lawsuit has not been filed. There's just leaks of it to the media. And that could be, at least from our vantage point, Novak may be saying, hey, I got to get in the offensive. I got to take control of this narrative a little bit. But it's an interesting story. The head tennis player, number one tennis player in the world, suing a government it's not a story that you and I have ever covered, one that I'm ever aware of. So, Dan, I'll, I'll turn it to you. What, do, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, after the Australian government has extended an olive branch to him to take the three-year suspension, basically can't re-enter the country for three years and say, well, you know, maybe circumstances could change next year. They extended an olive branch to try to sort of say, listen, you know, a, a year from now, there's a, there's a chance that will allow you back into the country. So in, so in the aftermath of that, he's now apparently going scorched earth. And he might be the only tennis player who can credibly argue that he would have won the first place prize money had he been allowed to participate. But unfortunately, the courts do not recognize these kinds of expectations. There's this notion that, you know, damages cannot be speculative. And if he's seeking $4.4 million in damages, 2.7 of that comprises what would have been the first place prize money for winning the Australian Open. And listen, I don't know about the courts where he's going to be filing, but in the U.S. legal system, a lawsuit like that, at least the damages portion of it would be significantly pared back because first place prize money for a tournament yet to be played sort of would be the you know, definition of speculative damages. I mean, many are called, few are chosen. Nobody can make that guarantee. So whether he sues or not, I don't know. But the lion's share of the requested damages, I believe, go beyond 
what are compensable damages in any kind of civil lawsuit. I think this is, and you hit on where I think people's minds are going. Certainly the, the prize money, I think is speculative, right? In sports, anything can happen. And Novak knows this very well. You're going to get injured, number one, or it could be like, I think this was the US Open. Novak was kind of frustrated and he hit a ball into the, he tried to hit into the stands. I don't know what he was trying to do. And he hit this ball, Dan. I've seen this video. I, maybe it shouldn't be funny, but I, maybe my weird sense of humor, I find it funny. He hits this ball and the ball hits a you know a ball woman or a lines judge in the neck and you know knocks this woman down and he's disqualified from the tournament because he hits a woman in the neck with a with a ball with an air he didn't mean to he just kind of kind of recklessly swung it so he was disqualified from that tournament even though he was the favorite for hitting someone with a ball so you know Novak can say I'm the favorite I've won the Australian Open nine times it doesn't really matter a lot of different things can happen and more more than not right he can get upset by somebody so even though Novak is probably the best person to make that this argument is not speculative. Hey, I would have won. It's still a speculative argument. You know, we, we got to call a spade a spade. No, but we're just focusing on the damages. The liability portion of, of any presumptive lawsuit would have to really be scrutinized because what the Australian government did here was apply their own law and imposed the same requirements on everybody. And, and let's not ignore the fact that his travel declaration contain false and inaccurate information. So he's got, he would have an uphill battle on challenging the, not the motives, but just challenging the Australian government's decision here. They applied the law even-handedly. In fact, they may have even given him a little, little bit of extra deference by having the full federal court of Australia consider his appeal. Very few litigants that get that kind of special treatment. I think there are significant obstacles in even coming anywhere close to establishing liability, even putting aside the challenges he would face in proving recoverable damages. So I think this is going to be all talk because if he goes forward and files this, I don't think this is a colorable lawsuit at all. But I guess if he files it in Serbia, one never knows. That's the key, right? Home court advantage here. If you file in Australia, you're going to lose. I don't, I, I can, I'll, I'll put money on that. If you file in Serbia, you know, it's obviously an interesting case here. And obviously, you know, Taryn mentioned in our last podcast, Taryn did a great job helping us helping us prep for that. You know, as much as we, a lot of attention was paid to the Australian prime minister's comments, you know, the leaders of Serbia are in this as well. So this is certainly a political battle on a number of fronts. Okay. Dan, one, one thing to add in this, right? You could have let this, if you're Novak, right? And I just, you know, you and I try to play it down the middle here. I know some people are very anti-Novak, pro-Novak, whatever it is, you know, just from a legal perspective. Novak could have let this thing die. I, I think you and I are right. He's probably not going to get a three-year ban. Maybe it's a one-year ban, whatever, right? You let this thing fade. We mentioned in the last podcast, Novak did something that black and white, if you lie on a federal travel form, you could face 12 months in prison. We have heard no talk about this whatsoever. Australia kind of let it off the hook. They're putting that in the background. No one's talking about it. If you're threatening to sue the country of Australia for $4 million, Australia still has another bullet to fire here, right? Bringing you back to the country and possibly facing jail time for lying your way into the country. That's what Australia would allege. So I would never, right, if it's my client, I would never pick a fight with the government, right? If you usually pick a fight with the government, you're going to lose, right? I mean, some people win. I just, you could tell you, hey, you might have a chance here, but there's also the, the other door here. The worst case scenario is you're in jail. So you're not just facing the one-year ban in the comfort country of your home, playing the other three Grand Slam titles, you're sitting in an Australian prison somewhere, right? That's the worst case scenario. I had a call with- No, the worst case scenario is doing that in Russia, which is <laughs> well, why I'm keeping a very low profile. 
you would know, Dan, you are in the ground in Russia, quite, quite literally. So I'll, I'll take your word for it. It's going to be a home cooking situation. He's going to file in the only place where he could possibly win, which is in Serbia. I don't know if they have a, a, a St. Louis trial court system, but he'll get a monetary judgment if the decks are stacked and, you know, he files in the right venue, which would be his home country. And then, you know, good luck trying to enforce that judgment. I'm not sold that he's necessarily going to file the lawsuit, symbolic. But, I, but I understand why he's threatening it because he's got to push back a little bit because now all these other tournaments are lining up to kick him out as well. So he's got to do something, right? This is the move. If you file it, that's totally a great different point. story. Okay. That's a great Dan, point. Okay, Dan, you know, we'll keep an eye on Novak. Mm -hmm. That story's not going away. I imagine we're going to cover this over the next couple of months. Novak wants to fight this. So maybe not good well, for Novak, good. but certainly good for the podcast. Another ripe ground to cover. Really? Okay. Last topic, you know, and then I, I know we want to add some stuff at the end. Dan, you had some breaking news before we jumped on, on the podcast. You are, you are the man. Obviously, you're a licensed attorney in Florida, but you're the man on the sports betting front. Dan, what's going on uh, in Florida? You had some breaking news for us. Yeah, a couple of months ago, a D.C. federal court judge issued an opinion in which she declared that the online sports betting law that was passed in Florida violated the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act because compacts, tribal compacts, can only include gambling on Indian land. And online sports betting is off Indian land. So she invalidated online sports betting and invalidated the entire compact, which would have given the Seminole tribe all these other gambling options. Well, we've been waiting to, to see whether the federal government was going to appeal that ruling. The Seminole tribe had appealed the ruling, but they had only argued the issue of sovereign immunity below. The merits of the decision were going to fall upon the federal government. And there was a deadline of January 22nd for the Department of Justice to file a notice of appeal. And I had surmised that the DOJ might walk away from this. Well, they didn't walk away. Earlier today, or actually on the 19th, the Department of the Interior, which is the named defendant because the Department of Interior is the agency approving the compact, they filed a notice of appeal indicating their intent to challenge the DC federal court's ruling. And why is this so important? It's important because now the issue of the merits of the decision are going to be litigated on appeal. If it had only been the Seminole tribe of Florida as the lone appellant, they would have been limited to their arguments below, which were, you can't sue the Seminole, you should have sued the Seminole tribe and named us in the lawsuit, but because we have sovereign immunity, the lawsuit would have been dismissed. That's a very narrow technical argument that was highly unlikely to succeed. And without the DOJ as an appellant, the tribe would have been foreclosed from addressing the merits of the decision, which would have raised the prospect of arguing whether online sports betting was properly included within a compact. And then the secondary issue of whether the other parts of the compact, which allowed roulette and craps and four new casinos, whether those could have been salvaged under a severability argument. And without the DOJ in the lawsuit, the tribe would not have been able to argue any of those points. But now that there's a main appellant arguing those issues, the Seminole tribe can now credibly at least address the issues that the main appellant has filed an appeal on. And that's a very significant development. I think the judge's decision is going to be affirmed by the DC circuit, but at the very least, the issues on appeal, at least with respect to the merits, will now be addressed. Understood, Danya. And I always, I love when you get into the weeds in Florida sports betting, because you have, for whatever reason, you have these people that are, A, there's a group of people that really loves what you say. And then there's these people that are very much pro-gambling at any cost, and they want to attack you and jump down your throat. When all you're doing 
is providing your legal analysis, right? For free. There's no, there's no cost. Yeah. Well, I'm a little gleeful about it sometimes. I think that's the issue. You know, if I was just this colorless, you know, commentator, which reported the news, you know, once every, you know, Haley's Comet, nobody would give a shit. But I've been predicting this and sort of been sort of out front about this. And, you know, I, when, when I was proven right, I wasn't quiet about that fact. So I think it rubbed a few of the gambling people the wrong way, especially some of those who wager heavily on gambling because they're looking for somebody to blame. And I'm just, you know, I was just a legal analyst on the case who had a correct prediction. I actually wagered correctly on the outcome of the lawsuit. And so people are looking to blame the, 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 the lawyer, the legal analysts, the parties that brought the case when fault, the only fault here should lie solely at the feet of the state of Florida, which decided that this cockamamie idea of, of having the location of the bet dictated by the placement of the server was a legally viable argument under federal law when cases that have been decided in the past have squarely rejected that argument. So it's really Governor DeSantis's and the Florida legislature's malfeasance here, which allowed a patently illegal compact to move forward, which ultimately delayed the rollout of sports betting in Florida by one year or more. And that's what ultimately this is all about. This is not a sort of a, a scholarly legal argument. It really goes to the question of when Florida could have online sports betting. They thought they were going to have it and did have it for 12 days. But as a result of this court ruling, coupled with the denial of a stay pending appeal, now the only viable option for online sports betting is either a successful appeal, which is highly unlikely, or a ballot initiative, you know, uh, at the end of the year. Obviously, we'll keep an eye on it. We don't have that issue in New York. New York sports betting is illegal. Shout out to uh, New York. Good job. Never know. Um, so I guess one, one final thing, I want to sneak this in. I know I didn't tell you about it ahead of time, but I, I hope, hopefully you were paying attention to this. We talk about people, Dan, that drop in your replies and yell at you and different tips that you have with a former guest that we, we, we still, you know, respect and obviously can have healthy disagreements. Maybe a little bit of a, a zag. Trevor Bauer, who we covered a lot on this podcast during his um, restraining order hearing, has emerged from, I'm going to say like Twitter jail. He just kind of wasn't staying that much. He wasn't talking about his case. It's been a couple months. Trevor Bauer, earlier this week, just went off. I don't know what, what necessarily prompted him, but in a series of, quote, tweets, normally if there's going to be a fight between a you know big baseball player, media member, right, two blue check marks, Twitter going back and forth, it is rare in, you know, you're going to trust me for our non-Twitter followers or Twitter users, it is rare for a an athlete or, you know, to kind of, quote, tweet and take someone else's response and put on a platform and disagree with them when that person is just like random Twitter user with like 10 followers or a random, you know, random person. Trevor Bauer went on kind of a, an onslaught. And that's the only way to put it, whether you're pro or anti Trevor Bauer, Trevor Bauer, you know, somebody, somebody told him it was okay to send these and kept them up. But people, there were some reports that he might be heading back to the Dodgers or, or whatnot. And there were people in the replies saying that, Hey, why are you letting this guy back? He has some gross allegations against him. And, you know, they, they were so gross, which we've chronicled on our show, but mainly allegations of sexual assault. And somebody was kind of characterizing the story. Hey, Trevor Bauer even acknowledges that these things are true. His argument was that these were consensual acts. So Bauer, you know, he must have seen these somewhere and he's, he's quote tweeting him, is saying, no, that is not what happened. There's two versions of the events. One by me, and I haven't said anything. Two, by the accuser who was, was acknowledged to be the judge to be untruthful. And three, the media's version. So unless you hear it from me, right, you don't know exactly what I'm saying, do you? And went pretty hard at a couple people here. Somebody quoted me for an article that's going to come out on Forbes probably in the next 24 hours, Dan. But I don't know if I would be telling my client, while the DA's office in Los Angeles 
is still investigating this case. It's still an open investigation. I don't think I would be so brazenly out here on Twitter screaming at people and drawing attention to a really messy case that has been put in the background, right? We're six months in the rear view of that case. I, I don't know what the utility is of just screaming at random people. It's not, not a good look. It ain't not a good look if you're the Dodgers thinking about whether or not to bring this guy back into the fold. In Yiddish, they call it Kinahura, right? You don't want to jinx your, you know, I guess, pending situation. He isn't out of the woods yet. And there's still a possibility that he could be charged criminally. But, you know, I, I think he has so much pent up aggravation and frustration over being, you know, placed on, you know, ice over, you know, accusations, which have not yet been proven, that I understand his frustration. And he's one of the most talented people at his position in a sport which craves and has a paucity of quality starting pitching. I mean, he's a top of the rotation starter. And now he's just been, you know, in his mind, you know, canceled over accusations. So I understand where he's coming from, but I just don't think the Dodgers bring him back. He's going to get paid and he's got a two-year contract, one more year remaining on his deal. Uh, He's going to get his money one way or another, unless there's criminal charges and an ensuing disciplinary proceeding to kind of put him, you know, on suspension. But I just don't know where there's a path back for him in Major League Baseball, even though he's undeniably one of the best pitchers of this era. So uh, we're not going to spend too long. I just, I found it, you know, a lot of people ask us about it. There's one person that I I just found just entertaining, right? Bowers in a fight with someone named Jennifer, right? I'm not going to shout out her handle. You can can go through his feeds. Just some random person. She's a speech therapist named Jennifer. And, you know, Bauer has this tweet that goes, there are two people who know what happened. One is a habitual liar proven to have misled the court. The other hasn't spoken about it. No, in all caps, no one else knows what happened. Certainly not you and certainly not the media. This is Bauer responding to some member of the media. Jennifer, random Jennifer goes, well, it certainly doesn't look good. So Bauer quote tweets her basically for non-Twitter users. He's retweeting hers with a caption above it, which is atypical, just put it that way. And he goes, Bauer responds to her. Any person with the internet can go on fan fiction and find a story that quote, doesn't look good too. What's the point? So Jennifer, this random Jennifer responds, any person with the internet can also see slash read what you did to her in in graphic detail. Bauer, again, quote tweets her. (laughs) and responds, no, they can see slash read what she said, all caps happen. No one can see slash read what actually happened because only two people know that. One hasn't spoken and the other one is a habitual liar who a judge found to have misled the court. Do you believe everything you read on the internet? Again, this is like a, a random public back and forth between Bauer and Jennifer. Jennifer responds, Trevor, use this energy on something else, please. Bauer responds, in other words, quote, I lost this argument, thanks for the life advice. So, and then Jennifer responds, if you pick a fight with at Bauer outage, which is his handle, your mentions will be in shambles from people who worship this nut. Bauer again responds, he wants to get the last word. At least you got the part right about you picking a fight with me. Plenty of other people do the same and scream harassment when I simply reply to a tweet. Whether or not he's doing it intentionally, and I mentioned this is the context of this, Bauer has this Bauer army, whatever you want to call it. And when Bauer goes after someone, his you know, the horde of followers, hundreds of thousands of people will go after that person. So it's just not a good look. It's not a good look, right? Some things are better left unsaid. I don't know what Bauer gains by attacking random Jennifer. I get, I do understand attacking media member who's pushing the narrative that, hey, you consent to this. That's really what you disagree with. I don't see the utility I'm picking on Jennifer, harmless Jennifer, random person, you know, not a good look. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily pro anti-Bauer, but I don't understand that for me legal perspective, PR perspective, you know, pick your battles elsewhere. I don't think random Jennifer needs to, needs to feel the scorn. Yeah. I feel bad for random Jennifer now because now she's known as random Jennifer. 
Yeah, well, random Jennifer. I mean, she probably has a higher opinion of herself than just being random Jennifer. Yeah, I mean, she's random Jennifer. If she wants to yell at me too, I'll, I'll give her her full name, but I don't want to put her handle out and, and uh, go into her LinkedIn resume, which is out there, but we're not going to talk about it. Okay, Dan, great episode. I think we had a lot of good stuff. Before we, we finish this, Dan, you know, I, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this ground. I know we're getting a lot of feedback on the Joe Judge interview. Dan, I, we're, we're in the hiring times, right? I get notifications when the Giants are interviewing somebody, left not, you know, left or left right. Sometimes people don't have that much experience. Sometimes they do. But it's certainly a weird world of NFL hiring practice. Dan, I'll, I'll turn it to you. I, I know you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just wondering whether, you know, the Giants are going to be repeating the mistakes of the past. Only in the National Football League. Does the way the hiring process work where instead of hiring somebody who's been successful at that job elsewhere, like look at the National Hockey League, the New York Rangers will hire Gerard Gallant to the Knicks and the NBA will hire Tom Thibodeau. Pat Riley was poached by the Miami Heat from the New York Knicks. In every other sport, when you're looking to maximize the, the chances of success, you hire somebody who's had that same job before and been successful at it, but only in the National Football League is the default maneuver hiring the next man up, an unproven personnel director who in turn is going to hire a never before head coach. So you have two unproven commodities who've never held that top job before in the world's most scrutinous media market in one of the most difficult jobs in professional sports. And I wonder why the National Football League's sort of hiring practices emulate that kind of model where you're just promoting in a way it's just keeping it within the family promoting from within and if i was running a team and obviously i'm a few billion dollars short in that regard i'd be looking to hire somebody who's been successful in that job before in the hope that he would hire as a head coach somebody who's been successful in that job before i mean if you're going to put your money on who's going to change the culture and and bring winning to a team like the New York Giants, would you hire Brian Dable or would you hire Jim Harbaugh? Would you hire you know, the next coordinator or would you hire Nick Saban? Would you hire you know, Thomas you know, Dimitrov? Would you hire Scott Pioli? Or would you hire somebody who's been sort of the pro personnel director at age 36, who's been in that job for two or three years? It boggles my mind that in the most difficult sport to have success as an executive, unproven commodities, are given the helm rather than hiring somebody who's crushed that job in another city and for another team. I don't understand why things work that way in the NFL. When you look at every other sport, the model for success has the blueprint is you hire the best that you can hire. So I'm going to, not that I disagree with your overall premise, but you know, you have this Dan infatuation with Nick Saban. Nick Saban has not had anywhere near the level of success in the pros that he has in college. So, I mean, it's, what have we seen with Urban Meyer, right? Cliff Kingsbury, these college coaches don't succeed. So I, I think your argument works better if you get rid of Nick Saban. I, I get it from an NFL experience level, but college is a different animal. And then one other thing before you yell at me, before you yell at me, before you yell at me, we had this movement occur in baseball about 20 years ago, the Moneyball movement. And they brought, they started to change the culture in, in the NFL or in Major League Baseball. And they would bring in these analytical minds, these Harvard, Yales, these Ivy League guys, because they were fundamentally changing baseball from a, you know, an old boys club to really this analytical club that was basing stuff on, you know, you can watch Moneyball, but on base percentage war and really some analytical expert stats, right? I think part of the explanation, um, because it's a really new movement that they're hiring such young people that people are jumping the line. I, I think they're trying to get into this analytical movement in the NFL. That's why people are jumping the line so 
you know, efficiently, right? So like Cliff Kingsbury is a guy who got hired with no NFL experience. He was a kind of failed flame out bust quarterback. He was at Texas tech. I remember, you know, he's breaking passing records. He goes to coach in college and basically redesigns a college football offense. And now when football, the NFL offense started to model college offenses, he kind of jumped the NFL line because now all of a sudden there was a value placed on young analytical based coaches that knew how to use the spread offense. So like I get going younger, it doesn't fully explain all these hires, like the Matt Nagy hire in Chicago. Like, I don't know, the guy's a kind of a failure. I don't want to say, I don't want to bash anybody, but like, you know, sometimes, and, and maybe we're at it now where they've swung too far, that they're in, more in favor of someone that's younger, that has this analytical mind and just throwing out like 20 years of NFL experience. There, there's got to be a middle ground here, which I, I think is what you're pointing out. Well, I think it's control. I mean, the general managers who are so new at the position and don't have the, the power or at least the, you know, the persona of, you know, someone like a George Young, for example, they're not going to want to go out and hire somebody who can overshadow them and potentially be a threat to them. They're going to hire someone who's beholden to them, which is why you end up with Aaron Boone's instead of Buck Showalters, why you end up with, you know, just a, a manager who the general manager in the analytics department can control. I mean, it's not for nothing that last year, Dusty Baker, Buck Showalter, Tony LaRussa, each had varying levels of success because they are professional managers who've had a lifetime of achievement in the sport and have experienced everything. Of course, there are, there are, there are exceptions to that rule. Bobby Valentine flamed out in Boston, and there's no guarantee that Buck Showalter will be successful in New York. But I think you go with the tried and true. And, you know, if you have an opportunity to hire Tom Thibodeau to coach the New York Knicks or Gerard Gallant to coach the New York Rangers, why would you even consider a never before head coach to occupy a spot that is in one of the most heavily scrutinized positions in the largest media market in the country, that if you own a team, you want to hire, you want to have some uh, level of confidence that the person you're hiring will be successful and the best barometer for success in job number two is success in the former job. And that's utterly lacking here in the New York Giants, you know, I guess, job search. Don't disagree. Knicks hired uh, David Fisdale, who had no prior huge experience. And right. then uh, we all know what happened with uh, with the Knicks. So, okay, Dan, uh, I just, I have one thing to add before we, we close this up. You know, I, I tweeted about it elsewhere. Um, I just want to mention it here as well. As our listeners know, I'm the uh, sports law professor at New York Law School. We are running a first of its kind soccer negotiation competition. Shout out, I know he listens. Ross Lazicki, the competition director at New York Law School, has done a fantastic job with the problems. We've read them. They're finalized. Registration closes Friday. I'm sure if you get this message and you want to reach out to me on a Monday or Tuesday, maybe we can make some exceptions. But we're still looking for a couple more teams. I know I've spoke to a number of you guys across the country, and I know everyone's getting their stuff together. So registration is about to close. If you are a practicing attorney or just maybe a, a huge, you work in soccer in some way, shape or form, we do have some people that reached out and you want to judge the competition, just drop us a note. I'm at Sports Law Lust on social media. Or if you feel more inclined to write me an email, you can send it to my personal email. Dan, you ready for this? Daniel.e.lust at Gmail. I'm giving it out. It is not, it is by no means private. I might give it out all the time, but that's easier. You're certainly welcome to, to send it there as well. Competition's in February 13th. So we want to release the problems within the week. So we need to finalize those teams, finalize our judges, but we had more teams registered than we anticipated. So we need a, need a couple more judges here. Okay, Dan, I think that's it. We had, it was so funny, Dan, you and I were talking yesterday and we're like, eh, there's not that much to cover. And then uh, eh, there's always something to cover, Dan. I had a feeling, I'd had a feeling we'd, we'd walk into a couple topics here. Yeah, a couple new ones. So, you know, waiting 24 hours. Uh, has allowed us to cover Gruden, Jokovich, St. Louis, postmortem, and basically every topic I think we covered today arose within the last 24 hours. So that's why you know an episode once each week 
it gives us ample opportunity to cover new topics. So this was a, this was a this was a fun one, and it was you know something we we couldn't have predicted you know two days ago. Well, I think we were expecting the Gruden filing to be made by the National Football League, but until you actually see it and read it, and, and then see some of the explosive arguments and allegations that the NFL makes, some of the some of the positions that they're taking, I mean, it was obvious that we had to cover it. As always, our podcast, just to, to remind everybody, is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, obviously the top bar prep company in the world. Themisbar.com slash Conductmental. They're giving $200 off of their already $800 discount, but the $200 is special for ConductDetrimental.com. Listeners, for anybody looking for advice on the bar, Themis guys do a lot of free resources for anyone taking the bar, but that's themisbar.com slash condetrimental is our page there. Definitely check it out. I would recommend Themis Bar Review because they're the greatest. They're the greatest bar prep company in the galaxy, like not just in America, in the entire universe. All good, Dan. Yeah, so that'll put this episode officially in the books. As always, Wallach Legal is where to find Dan on social media. Myself, Dan Lust at Sports Law Lust. The show is at Con Detrimental. And for Dan and myself, we will see you next time on another episode of Conic Detrimental.